This is Africa Digest. Good afternoon and welcome to Africa Digest. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective, broadcasting to you from our studios in Johannesburg, South Africa. You can find us on www.channelafrica.co.za. My name is Samora Mangesi and I'm in studio with Onelens Insi and Tracy Boomgaard. Top stories on Africa Digest at this hour. Zimbabwe's journalist Hopal Chinono granted bail under strict conditions. Mixed reaction to Sudan's power-sharing peace deal. And Guinea's ruling party has confirmed months of speculation that uh, 82-year-old President Alpha Conde will seek a third term in office. Right now, though, it is time for us to cross on over to the news desk. Here's on Lincency with the latest. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Thank you, Samora. News just in, Zimbabwean investigative journalist Hopewell Chinono has been granted bail by the country's high court. He must now adhere to strict conditions, including seizing use of all social media. The reporter was arrested in July after promoting an anti-corruption demonstration. The state is charging Chinono with inciting public violence. Nohmabolani reports. Hopewell Chinono was labelled anti-government after a series of his work documented corruption in government departments. His latest stories about fraudulent tenders in the health system ironically led to the firing of Health Minister Obadiah Moyo back in May. Chinona supported the nationwide July demonstrations, using his social media platforms to promote the action. Chinona now has been banned with communicating with the public through social media. He also has to report to the police three times a week and surrender his passport. This was his fourth attempt at being released since he was first arrested six weeks ago. Earlier, the Zimbabwe High Court granted opposition politician Jacob Ngarivome bail. This was Ngarivome's fourth attempt to be freed after the same court and a lower magistrate court denied him bail previous three times. Ngarivome was arrested in July and faces charges of inciting public violence as well in relation to promoting an anti-corruption demonstration. Nobra explains. Jacob Garivume's lawyers have been working tirelessly in getting her out of prison. They argued that he no longer posed a threat as the date of the demonstration had already passed. The lawyers also applied for his release, citing poor conditions in prison as well as the risk of COVID-19. The High Court accepted this but imposed strict bail conditions. Garivume has to surrender his passport and report to the police three times a week. The opposition politician has also been barred from using social media. It was his tweets promoting the demonstration that landed him in custody and charged with inciting public violence. Tunisia's parliament has granted its vote of confidence to the new cabinet led by Prime Minister-designate Hichem Michichi. A total of 134 deputies voted in favour of, form, of forming the cabinet in a vote in parliament which lasted more than 14 hours. The cabinet would be the third Tunisia has since, since October and the ninth since the revolution that brought down the North African autocratic regime in 2011 and triggered Arab Spring uprisings across the region. If the government had been rejected, the President Kais Said would have been obliged to dissolve Parliament and call a new election. Privacy experts have assured South Africans that newly launched COVID-19 alert SA app will not infringe on their privacy. The Department of Health launched the app to help with contact tracing related to the coronavirus. The free app is part of a global initiative by tech giants Apple and Google to help fight the pandemic. People who test positive for the virus can share their status anonymously on the app. This will help alert the close contacts who are also using the same app. But in order for it to be effective, users need to keep their Bluetooth on at all times. Its success will depend on the number of users. Privacy advocate Emma Sedler. There are 
are always privacy concerns when we're using technology. I think as soon as they're using your location, people start feeling nervous about privacy. I have been through the app in detail with the developers, and I am entirely satisfied that it is sufficiently anonymized. They don't collect any of your personal information. No name, no email address, no phone number, no location is collected or stored. And because it's entirely anonymous, those privacy concerns, and if you've been following Poppy, the new data protection law in any way, you'll know that as soon as um, personal information is anonymized, then it falls outside of the realm of Poppy, which is our, our new privacy legislation. Russian court is sentenced to Jehovah Witnesses to four years in prison after finding them guilty of extremism. Russia's Supreme Court branded the Jehovah Witnesses as extremists organizing the organization in 2017 and ordered it to be disbanded. Since then, the authorities have detained dozens of Jehovah Witnesses and convicted them on extremism charges. The four will, however, appeal against the jail sentence. Now, looking at your sports news, South African netball player Shadine Fadimarver is happy to be back in court. She's currently playing, playing a trade in the Suncop Super League in Australia, where she is contracted to the Adelaide Thunderbirds, the Suncop Super League. Uh, only got underway in August after being postponed due to the global COVID-19 pandemic. All matches are being played without spectators. Fadimarver says she's happy to be back with her teammates. Being back here with the Suncorp Super Netball is just fantastic and we are really privileged to be able to have a season um, with the pandemic going in the global and um, just getting into the season we know we have a condensed season so it will mean it's a lot of load for a shorter term of period but it's just so great that um, we have the abilities to get on court, be strong and um, play with the girls so this year I'm coming in for my second season it's really um, excites me much more and um, feel like my connection with the girls is much more better and it's just so great to see the um, the level of netball we compete in Lastly, Zimbabwe international striker Knox Motizwa still has a chance to finish as the top goal scorer in the South African APSA Premiership. His team Golden Arrows might already be out of contention for the South African APSA Premiership title, but he is still in firm contention for the prestigious Leslie Manyatela Golden Boot. He is currently tied on second position on 13 goals together with KZ Chiefs Samir Nukovic, Super Sports United, Bradley Hlobla, and Amazulus Bongintuli. The Zimbabwean international has been a key figure for Stephen Gombella's team this season as they continue to push for a top eight finish. Channel African News, I'm Onelin Sinzi. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy, which can ensure full employment to our people. The government concurs with the views of the Black Economic Empowerment Council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on Black Economic Empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at Netle to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that discussions have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize, to attract investment, and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. I tried looking for a job for it's a year and a half now. The challenges were experience and the, the level of education which I have. Channel Africa. The Harare High Court has set strict bail conditions, including no use of social media, on Zimbabwean investigative journalist Topal Chinono. The journalist has been granted bail of 10,000 Zim dollars. The reporter was arrested in July after promoting an anti-corruption demonstration. The state is charging Chinono with inciting public violence. For the latest on these developments, we're joined on the line from Harare by our correspondent in Zimbabwe, Simon Muchemwa. Simon, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. 
Now, this must be very exciting news in Zimbabwe. Can you tell us how this has been received by the public? Uh, it is early uh, hours now because the bail ruling has just been made. But, of course, uh, human rights defenders, lawyers, um, and uh, quite a number of concerned citizens have expressed um, gratitude. But, of course, uh, there is mixed feelings because uh, some are fearing for the health, especially for Hope Wachimono who uh, has been seen to have exhibited some um, COVID-like symptoms of late, especially yesterday when appeared as much as court in Harare. Uh, the court was actually refusing to take him to hospital until his doctor, a private doctor, uh, was then allowed to uh, do some tests. The results are up, uh, yet to come out. But uh, it's great news anyway for even the journalism fraternity and even for politics, because they say four five days in prison with the conditions in Zimbabwe in prison is like hell in Zimbabwe. All right, and uh, what are the conditions of his bail? Uh, uh, should I say both? Jabunga, Garivome, and Wapochimono have been asked not to use their Twitter accounts as well as Facebook accounts at all until their matters are finalized. For Hope Ochimono, he has been asked to stay at his home in Highlands uh, to surrender title um, this to his home, report to the police station, the nearest police station, and uh, three times a week, uh, anytime from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. And then, um, yeah, I think that basically that, that's it. And uh, you find now that... Uh, Complaints are there that uh, uh, it's like suppressing their freedom of expression by barring them from using their Twitter and Facebook accounts. Right, and as we speak, where is he? As we speak right now, he's still in custody. There's a procedure for someone to be released from a prison. These people have been in um, a prison for 45 days now. So what then happens is that after um, submitting all the documents, paying the amount required, get the magistrate court, because the bail ruling was made at the high court. So they would go to the Arab magistrate court, pay uh, the amount and submit all the documents required. And then a warrant of um, liberation is then raised from the magistrate court, which is then taken to the prison. And uh, then at the prison, they will release. Uh, the two people, but you find that uh, that might take a bit of time. So either you'll be released tomorrow in the morning or late in the night today. That's if the offices are still open. All right. And uh, there were reports of him not being well. And uh, like you said, that they had to wait for his doctor. What is the latest with regards to his health right now? Um, we, are, we are yet to be informed by the lawyers of the latest details whether it is indeed uh, COVID-19 positive or not. But uh, we hear that uh, in the cell that he was, there were there are about six people who had tested positive to COVID-19. Cells in Zimbabwe are supposed to hold maybe up to about 15 people. But uh, we have always heard reports that uh, these cells are crammed, they are overcrowded, and up to about 56 people are found in one cell. Uh, and this is a cause for concern. So even though he was uh, indicating some flu-like, some uh, COVID-like symptoms, we don't know yet whether it is positive until the results come out. So we are not yet sure whether the results are going to come out today or tomorrow. But uh, since it was done at a private doctor, we understand that it might come as soon as possible. All right. And uh, there was also problems around his lawyer, Beatrice Mtetwa, what is the latest regarding her? That is that first matter has been sent to uh, arbitration, law society of Zimbabwe. There are allegations by the uh, magistrate court uh, that uh, she interfered with the uh, processes in the court by uh, posting uh, all the proceedings on Facebook, on her Facebook account. And according to the magistrate, that was uncalled for and unethical. So the Law Society of Zimbabwe is yet to determine, and even the Minister of Justice is yet to say anything regarding that. 
And back, we saw some drama last week at the Master's Court where Beatrice Sintetua wanted to uh, get into the court for another case, but she was denied access by the police, and there was a scuffle there at the Master's Court. So this is the treatment she has been receiving lately. We are not yet sure whether she, she is still uh, being uh, allowed to, uh, to operate as a lawyer or not, but we know in Zimbabwe your license cannot just be cancelled just like that. A tribunal has got to be set. You are then tried and see whether indeed you committed an offence which is unethical uh, against your profession. But that is yet to be done so far. All right, Simon, thank you very much for joining us. No problem, thanks. That was our correspondent in Harare, Simon Muchemwa. For your latest update on the novel coronavirus for Channel Africa in Mombasa, Kenya, I am Diana Wanyonyi. Droplets spread virus. By following good respiratory hygiene, you protect the people around you from viruses such as cold, flu, and COVID-19. History was made in Sudan earlier this week after the power-sharing government in Khartoum signed the long-awaited peace agreement with the country's nine rebel groups. To tell us more, here is James Shimanyula. The signing of the agreement by nine leaders of rebel groups and Sudani government took place in neighboring South Sudan's capital, Juba. To witness the historic signing of the agreement was General Abdel Fattah Burhan, head of the Khartoum government and Prime Minister Abdullah Hamdok. The agreement is important in three ways. Firstly, it was preceded by on and off one-year talks between the rebels and the Khartoum government. The talks were mediated by South Sudan President Salva Kiir. Secondly, the agreement is important and timely because it will resolve what military and political experts have repeatedly described as deep-rooted armed conflict that occurred in Sudan under the rule of toppled President Omar Hassan Ahmed el-Bashir. However, to respect and safeguard the agreement, leaders of parties that appended their signatures to it must comply fully with all its clauses. Thirdly, the United Nations as well as international and local human rights groups estimate that more than half a million people have been killed and nearly three million displaced in 17 years of armed conflict in Sudan. Speaking briefly after the signing of the peace agreement, Sudan's information minister Faisal Mohamed Saleh said, We have started actually the real transformation of Sudan from dictatorship to democracy. Saleh asserted that the signing of the agreement was the first step in a long journey of restoring democracy in Sudan after more than 30 years of what he described as a dictatorship by toppled President Omar Hassan Ahmed al-Bashir. According to Saleh, it is easy to sign an agreement, but it is difficult for signatories to comply with its clauses. The signing, he said, is on paper, paving the way for the implementation of the agreement on the ground. However, Saleh said with the political will and the love for peace in Sudan, the agreement will be highly respected by its signatories. One of the signatories to the agreement is Yasir Arman, leader of Sudan Revolutionary Front. This is how he described the agreement. It is uh, an important uh, step that uh, came as a result of the revolutions and uh, one of the corners of the revolutions is to bring peace to Sudan and uh, now the transition will have uh, more energy. The transition that Yasir Arman is referring to is derived from three years of transitional arrangement agreed last August between top military officials under the umbrella Opposition Forces for Freedom and Change. Yasir Armani disclosed that Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates have promised to provide financial support to the Khartoum government during its transitional period, as well as supporting the implementation of the peace agreement. According to Yasir Arman, the peace agreement will create a suitable atmosphere in Sudan with the express purpose of attracting armed movements that refused to sign. 
signed. The signing of the agreement has been welcomed by ordinary citizens of Sudan. Here are voices of two of the Arabic-speaking citizens. The peace that we have been waiting for has come. Let the agreement be implemented as soon as possible by all parties to the agreement. We want permanent peace in Sudan. We are now in a new era of peace. Let us forget the bitter past that saw brothers fighting brothers. Voices of two of South Sudan citizens. Commenting on the signing of the peace agreement, Saeed Abdel Khalil, an independent political and military expert on Sudan, underscored the historic fact that Sudan has been searching for permanent peace for more than 60 years. Khalil points out that it has taken 12 months for rebel groups and the Khartoum government to sign the peace agreement. What's happened is a conclusion of what started a year ago, bringing together factions. Some of them are armed, some are not armed, under the leadership of Sudan Revolutionary Forces with uh, some rebel groups in Darfur and also a faction of the SPLM because the SPLM North now is split into two. One faction led by Malikagar who has uh, commendable forces in Blue Nile with Yasser Arman and others, plus the SPLM rose led by Abdelaziz Al-Hilo. Abdelaziz Al-Hilo, that Sayyid Abdel Khalil is referring to, is considered one of the most successful Sudanese military commanders in the history of Sudan. The rebel SPLM North that Al-Hilo leads is the main rebel group that has been fighting the Khartoum government in two of the country's 18 regions, Southern Kordofan and Blue Nile, named after the Blue Nile River. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. Moving on right now, uh, meanwhile, one of the leaders from Sudan Liberation Movement says the new Sudan peace agreement is a joke. Speaking to Channel Africa, Sabir Ibrahim, representative of the Sudan Liberation Movement, says that the peace deal signed between a rebel alliance and the government led by Sudanese Prime Minister Abdallah Hamdok does not deal with the root cause of the war. On Monday this week, the country's transitional government signed a peace agreement with the Sudan Revolutionary Front. However, the Sudan Liberation Movement North and the Sudan Liberation Movement Army refused to sign this agreement. Ibrahim says this movement wants Sharia law to be scrapped from the country's constitution and they're calling for the establishment of a secular state. This so-called peace is, is a big joke, my brother. It's, it's not a sort of peace. You see, that those people are only one, one unity because they are part and parcel of Sudan call. And now they came to Juba just to distribute power. Have got, they failed to address the crisis of the root cause of the, the war. Mm-hmm. We have the crisis of identity. Mm. We have the crisis of religion. They fail. There's nothing being talked about it. They talk about how to share, how to share the, the, the resource and how to share the power. We didn't fight for this. So, Sabir, you know, according to uh, our conversation with Jock Maduk, Jock, he highlighted those particular concerns, but he highlighted the fact that it seems like uh, there's a way forward in the peace-building process, as if there has, because there's been a, um, an accommodation of the dynamics of power within uh, the provinces. Well, you see, our, our struggles, let me put it this way, we need a national project that is a state policy to address the political inadequacy, citizenship, disassociation, social and instruction, dysfunctioning. So what we are trying to do to create this crisis of nationhood, we need to address it. How so? That, that, that is what we are missing here. Mm. This piece, what so-called needs, is a missing, missing mm. point. Mm. So what must be done in terms of moving things forward? What, what is your real unhappiness with this um, agreement? Because it seems like there are other parties that have agreed alongside the country's transitional government under the umbrella of the Sudan Revolutionary Front. Are you not satisfied with uh, the leadership within uh, the coalition group? You see, for, for us, it's, it's not about the leadership. Mm. You know, the same root causes that led South Sudan to separate from Sudan. What is the root causes? There is the four root causes of being led South Sudan to separate from Sudan. The mm. same root causes today 
need to be addressed in Sudan, which is issue of identity, issue of religion. We have a political violence in Sudan since 50 years. Hmm. We're based in violence, political violence and civil war. Is so that the main reason why the Sudan Liberation it. North did not sign the agreement? No, we are not part of it. Yeah. We, we, told, we told them that this is a situation can be solved in this one, two, three, four. We need to accept these things that as a Sudanese, let us address these things pre-constitution. A pre-constitution that, you know, we need to address the root causes of the war. And, 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 you know, I'm trying to get something very tangible from you, um, Sabir, in terms of I understand your sentiment in the issues that you highlighted, but what instruments can be used to deal with those issues uh, that have been identified by the Sudan Liberation Movement? Well, we need a negotiation, a union negotiation. Let us sit down and talk about it, and we, we present to them that this is the issue that we need to address it. And they say, okay, we come back for you. But, but this, uh, the, 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 what is happening, currently happening, they fail to address the root causes of the war. We don't need to come back for war. We need to solve the, solve the, the prices once and for all. We need peace. Peace, mm. union peace, that is address the real causes. Mm. You see, nations nation are made, not mm. born. You know what I'm saying? So mm. we, need, we, need, we need to work in how to see the communities between us, to unite us. The religions, political Islam, so to speak, today, they will never unite up. And they failed to. I told, we told them, you know, you have to, to dismiss this Sharia law. They said to dismiss Sharia laws. Within mm. the Sharia laws, you cannot accept to, to, uh, to uh, a zone of being and non-beings to live together. Mm. So the issue of religions is there. Mm. The issue of identity is there. Mm. We fail to address this thing. So we don't need, we don't need to go back to war. We can sign with them today, but tomorrow come back for war. Mm. No, we cannot do that one. And that was Sabir Ibrahim, a representative of the Sudan Liberation Movement, speaking to Benjamin Mushatama. Guinea's ruling party has confirmed months of speculation that 82-year-old President Alpha Conde will seek a third term in office, a possibility that had already sparked deadly mass protests in the country. The news came after Conde pushed through a constitutional reform in March that critics argued was designed to allow him to run for office again on the uh, October 18th elections. Conde is a long-time opposition leader whose election raised hopes for democratic progress, but his efforts to stay in power have raised concerns. Guinea will go to the other, uh, the, the way of other ca- African countries whose rulers have refused to step down long after their mandates expired. For more on this, Channel Africa spoke to Francois Patuel, an expert on Guinea, who says Conde's candidacy is likely to spark more protests. Well, unfortunately, it's not surprising. He had uh, changed the constitution uh, earlier in the year, and there had been concerns since last year um, that that he would run for, that Asa Conde would run for a third term. What is worrying is that this will lead to uh, political tensions, a surge in political tensions, uh, particularly with the opposition groups that are strongly against him, running for for a third term Um, and the risk is that these political tensions will will lead to further human rights violations. Um, Guinea has a history of of, uh, human rights violations and abuses including uh, killings during political protests. Uh, There was the social media shutdown uh, earlier in the year in March 2020 during the constitutional referendum. Uh, There are regular uh, arrests of pro-democracy leaders and the risk is that these uh, violations will, will increase now that the political tensions are, uh, are rising. Um, so it's very important that the Guinean authorities uh, take immediate measures to protect uh, freedom of expression and freedom of peaceful assembly. And that, um, and one way they can do that is, first of all, release the human rights defenders and pro-democracy leaders uh, who have been detained, some of them for more than six months uh, in arbitrary detention. As you say, for several months now, uh, the possible candidacy of Alpha Conde for a third term has crystallized detentions in the country. What has been the general reaction of the civil society organizations within Guinea? Because I suppose they have not welcomed this news, isn't it? No, not at all. And uh, they, they, they were actually concerned 
uh, even you know last year about the prospect that he may have tried to to change the constitution and run for a third term. So unfortunately, you know, they, their concern was right. Um, they, they were right to be concerned and to protest. Um, and there is a, a strong civil society and, and opposition coalition called the, the Front National de la Défense de la Constitution, the National Front for the Defense of the Constitution that was set up last year uh, precisely to, to protect the constitution and to protect um, the, the fact that you, you, you have to have uh, to respect the two terms limit. And they organized protests last year, which led to, to unfortunately clashes with the security forces and, and dozens of people being uh, being killed. They were very active also uh, during the, the constitutional referendum that happened in March 2020. Um, and scores of their um, leaders have been arrested uh, since last year um, in relation to, to their to their human rights and pro-democracy activities. So yes, there is the, the, the news is not welcomed by, by uh, civil society groups, and particularly not uh, the, the Front National de Défense de la Constitution. And in Unfortunately, uh, their leaders are paying the price for expressing their dissent. Now, under Guinea's new constitution, presidents uh, may only serve uh, two terms, as you said, but uh, according to some observers, the new constitution could reset the presidential term counter and enable him to run a third term. This is the view, of course, which has been confirmed by uh, the RPG, the rally of uh, the Guinean people. It seems like uh, the RPG is of the view that uh, President Conde is not breaking any law here. No, I mean that's that's what um, the, the RPG and Alpha Conde says. It's I mean it's, it's very it's a it's a very common uh, tactic, unfortunately, in, in West Africa. This is also uh, what what Zara is using now to say that he also can run for a third term. So you change the constitution uh, during your mandate, you get you get a new constitution adopted, and then you say that the counter uh, gets down to to zero. And unfortunately, this is a this is this is not the only time it has happened. Um, um, President Wad also in Senegal tried a few years ago to do that. Um, so it, it's not unprecedented, uh, but unfortunately, it really, set, it really confirms this trend of um, leaders, you know, clinging on to power and you know trying to trying different methods to stay in power, um, despite the fact that there is strong opposition from civil society groups, from pro-democracy groups uh, about uh, about this practice. Now, do you see more demonstrations in the run-up to uh, October 18th elections? Uh, it's it's uh, the, the FNDC, the Front National de la Défense de la Constitution, uh, has already announced uh, uh, that it would uh, it would pick up the protests again. Uh, so it's very likely, yes, that there will be that there will be more uh, protests, and it's very important that the Guinean authorities respect the right to freedom of uh, of peaceful assembly and that they allow for these uh, peaceful protests uh, to happen and that they don't use excessive force, uh, which they have a, a, a sadly a tendency to do, and, and and that they don't kill any of the of the peaceful protesters. Uh, it's very important because otherwise, you know, if there are further killings, it just fuels the cycle of violence that you that we've been seeing in Guinea uh, for, for the last decade. And so it's very important that the Guinean authorities respect the right to freedom of, of peaceful assembly, particularly in such an important time as an election time, um, and allow for people to express their, their dissent freely. Now, why do you think uh, the ruling RPG would endorse the incumbent uh, to be a candidate in uh, the upcoming election? Is it uh, the, the general impression of Guineans that uh, perhaps uh, the governing RPG party does not have uh, another suitable candidate to take over from Conde? Well, it's, it's difficult to know, but what, one thing is, is, is clear is that Conde has always been, the, he's never really stepped down in, in his official uh, capacity as the chief of the party. Um, so he's always been remaining, he's always remained very close uh, to the party. So it, it's not surprising that the party would, uh, would endorse uh, a, a call for for a third term. Um, but you know, it's, it's it's difficult. Of course, it's difficult to to know what you know why why he's running for a third term. I mean, there is uh, it's very difficult. And that was Francois Patois, an independent researcher on Guinea on the line from Dakar and Senegal, talking to Kumbelo Mujelele. It's now time for your latest news headlines. Here's on it and Sensi. SABC News, independent. And impartial. From an African perspective. perspective. 
A Zimbabwe opposition politician and journalist Hopewell Chinoono detained for more than a month on suspicion of planning anti-government protests over corruption have been released on bail. The trial of Fasted Sudanese President Omar Bashir has been adjourned to September 15th and privacy experts have assured South Africans that the newly launched COVID Alert SA app will not infringe on their privacy. Channel Africa News, I am Onelintzintzi. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. The South African electricity utility, ESCOM, has reported a uh, severely constrained power system uh, resulting in continued load shedding. The latest round of load shedding comes as 10 generation units at seven power stations have suffered breakdowns. The South African National Energy Development Institute, SENEDI, believes that energy efficiency is a vital um, component for improved electricity provision and economic recovery in light of this latest round of load shedding. To elaborate more on this, we're joined on the line by Barry Bredenkamp, uh, General Manager for Energy Efficiency and Corporate Communications at SENEDI. Uh, Barry, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me and good evening to all the listeners around the continent. Now, Barry, how much do these inconvenient power interruptions cost the South African economy? Well, a recent study was undertaken by the Council for Scientific and Industrial Research in in South Africa, a very reputable study, and they're estimating that the cost to the economy over the last 10 years as a result of these power outages is in the order of 338 billion rand lost to the economy. Wow. And why do you believe that energy efficiency is vital for improved electricity provision and economic recovery? Well, in this case, it's a case of less being more. You know, uh, it's clear that Eskom can't meet the demand. Uh, besides the breakdowns, the 10 units that have broken down, 10 uh, faults set of that, uh, Eskom just can't meet the capacity. So it's a supply and demand situation. So if we all work collectively to reduce our demand for energy and we, we start using it more efficiently and wisely and we don't put things on unnecessarily and we don't see street lights burning in the day and these sorts of things, uh, we're going to reduce the demand for energy, which will allow Eskin to be able to do the necessary maintenance they have to do, but at the same time be able to meet the, the demand levels. But right now, we are quite wasteful in our use of electricity and we, we want more from Eskom and more that they can supply, and that would lead to the rotational load shedding that we're experiencing uh, once again in, in, in a severe uh, in a severe phase. Uh, today we went from uh, stage two to stage four. You know, this afternoon with just passing stage three. So it shows you the the severity of the problem. And uh, how can this be achieved? So if we we and when I talk about we, I'm talking about residential consumers. I'm talking about businesses. I'm talking about industry. I'm talking about municipalities uh, who are big users of electricity. They need electricity for besides the streetlights that I've mentioned for all their water treatment works, for their water uh, pumping to the different uh, areas. Um, the storage and so municipalities of large consumers of electricity. If we all in our own right become more efficient. If we use electricity wisely, if we install the correct technologies, new technologies that are energy efficient, uh, uh, you know, an example that's applicable to everyone is lighting. And lighting is is uh, cross-cutting across uh, residential, low-income, high-income, medium-income, industry, commerce, uh, hotels, everyone uses lighting. If we convert to LED lights as opposed to the conventional incandescent and fluorescent lights we, we use, we're reducing our energy by up to 80%. So we still get the same amount of light, but using 80% less electricity. That's one technology. There's, there's lots of other technologies. Right now, you know, the heating technologies come to mind in this current weather we're experiencing in South Africa particularly. There are efficient heating technologies as opposed to using these old bar heaters, which are very, very energy inefficient. So, so it's about coming together thinking about what, how we use electricity, changing our behavior, which is very important, and then where affordable uh, to convert to more energy-efficient technologies. Uh, and collectively, we might think, oh, my, my one light bulb uh, is not going to make a, a difference. I'll just leave it on. If you take 
everyone's light bulbs collectively. We're talking about a vast amount of electricity. If we all do it, we will then be able to be in a position where we reduce the demand and Eskom will then be able to provide uh, for, for, for everyone in the country. All right, and uh, there's obviously going to be hurdles in implementing energy efficiency. How do we go about overcoming those? Yeah, so this is not a problem only in South Africa. We, we, we've received reports from the International Energy Agency that look at energy efficiency and other energy matters right across the world and, and, and definitely across our continent. And they're finding it that you know, people are concerned with so many things right now. We've got a COVID-19 pandemic to consider. We've got economic factors. We've got unemployment. We've got so many things to consider that the use and our behavior in using energy is not necessarily top of mind. So uh, we, we have to, uh, if we can, for lack of a better word, prioritize or reprioritize the, def- the many issues that we, we're containing with today. Uh, and as I said, this is not a unique problem. Everywhere around the world, we've been encouraged to do it. Prioritize our energy because if we get the energy situation right, then all the other things fall in place. The economy cannot function without electricity. So if we can avoid load shedding by being more efficient, we are going to stimulate the economy. We're going to see more factories uh, starting up, more businesses starting up. Uh, that will, will, will give a kickstart to the, the much-needed economic stimulus that we need as a result of the, the devastating results that we've seen from the COVID-19 pandemic. All right, Barry, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure and have a good evening. You too. That's Barry Bredenkamp, General Manager for Energy Efficiency and Corporate Communications at the South African National Energy Development Institute, Sanedi. For your latest update on the novel coronavirus for Channel Africa, I am Collins Nusa Atohengwe in Lagos, Nigeria. Stay home if you feel unwell, if you have a fever, cough and difficulty in breathing, seek medical attention. But call in advance. Follow the directions of your local health authority. Cameroon is today end- ending three days of activity- activities. It started on August 31st it com- to commemorate the African Traditional Medicine Day. The government and its partners are cautioning civilians against quacks. The Central African state says fake healers are taking advantage of 70% of its 25 million population who rely on traditional medicine. Uh, Moki Kinzeka reports from Yaoundé that in spite of the caution, many people still prefer African traditional medicine because it is cheaper and accessible. Cameroon marked African Traditional Medicine Day, cautioning its population against quacks, trying to make money, especially during the COVID-19 pandemic. A so-called African traditional healer uses a loudspeaker to entice passers-by. He says people who have not found solutions to their health problems in hospitals should come to him. Cameroon authorities say there are more than 800 traditional healers in the capital Yaoundé. The Cameroon Association of French-speaking healers says nationwide there are at least 19,000. Hila Nadej Avulu accepts chickens as consultation fees from patients who do not have money. Avulu, who has received 15 chickens in the last day, says she specializes in spiritual healing. She says early signs of spiritual attacks include severe pain on the forehead, nose bleeds, vomiting and fever. Avulu says she helps patients by giving them medicine she prepares from mango, tree roots, and animal skin. 50-year-old farmer Marie Esimbe took her sick son to Avulu. She says her 32-year-old son regained his health and started working on his own after he went through some form of spiritual cleansing. 
As Cindy says, the healer boiled some leaves and grains for her son to drink and wash his face with three times a day. Cameroon authorities say about 70% of its 25 million people depend primarily on African traditional medicine as many in remote areas cannot access hospitals or afford them. But while some herbal medicines have been shown to have health benefits, many other alleged traditional medicines only help the so-called healers. Divine Teller leads a group of five such healers who claim to have successfully treated patients with COVID-19. Nous avons des statistiques bien documentées, suivies dans le milieu clinique, des personnes âgées qui ont été guéries, des personnes qui ont des comorbidités. She says she can confirm that a thousand people who tested COVID-19 positive recovered their health after they were treated with African traditional medicine. Chala says some of those who recovered from COVID-19 were more than 60 years old. Cameroon authorities stress there is no cure for COVID-19 or effective treatment by African traditional medicine. Cameroon Health Minister Manauda Malashi on African Traditional Medicine Day Monday warned against quack healers and their claims. Comme tout Africain, nous connaissons très bien quel est l'apport de la médecine traditionnelle. Malachi says, like many Africans, he can't undermine the importance of African traditional medicine in saving lives and ensuring general well-being. But he warns it is imperative for successful African traditional healers to organize themselves and help the government to kick out from their midst those charlatans who are damaging the lives of innocent people. In that regard, Malachi says he has ordered a census of prominent and acclaimed African traditional medical practitioners in Cameroon. Malachi said their aim is to root out quacks and stop the illegal business from putting Cameroonian lives at risk. Authorities say while some traditional medicines have a proven medical use, Many fake healers are looking to scam those who cannot afford modern medicine. The World Health Organization marks African Traditional Medicine Day to involve verified traditional healers in healthcare services. Shortly after the pandemic reached Cameroon in March, the government began urging those with COVID-19 symptoms to go to hospitals, not to so-called healers. The WHO says Cameroon has over 19,000 confirmed cases of the virus and more than 400 deaths. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzaka in Yaoundé, Cameroon. A humanitarian crisis continues to unfold in northeast Syria where more than 700,000 people are displaced. Like much of Syria, this area has been devastated by more than nine years of conflict. According to the Global Medical Aid Agency Doctors Without Borders, or MSF, COVID-19 is also compounding uh, the displa displaced people's problems. MSF reports an increase of the number of people diagnosed with COVID-19, including health workers. More from Will Turner, Emergency Manager for MSF Syria. Well, the situation is at a critical point at the moment. Um, in the northeast of Syria, which is an area affected by over nine years of, of, of conflict, um, that currently more than 700,000 people displaced from their homes. Many of those people are living in informal settlements. Um, others are living in displaced person camps. And the situation in, in those locations is, is very dire. Um, these are places where water and sanitation problems are, are very difficult. There's, there's a very difficult amount of water being able to be provided to these people. And in an area which is already suffering from a lack of um, sufficient health care, um, the current COVID situation is, is putting increased pressure with, with many people um, uh, and, and many health workers even um, not able to, to work because of either having COVID or being put in quarantine. And this results in many health facilities being, being closed or, or suspended. 
Um, and this obviously puts a pressure on uh, on people who who aren't able to be treated for basic um, basic illnesses and and then risks um, further deteriorating. I can imagine that, of course, uh, the pandemic, much like in the rest of the world, you know, has uh, given added pressure to the situation. What is it that MSF has been able to to achieve in response? Then, uh, will and and what have been uh, the priorities that you've had to make? Um, well, obviously, it's a it's a difficult uh, it's a difficult situation for everyone. On the one hand, we're very much focusing on keeping existing uh, health services uh, running. Um, for example, in in Al Hol camp, this is a uh, a camp of, of over sixty five thousand people, where where ninety um, over ninety uh, percent are uh, are women and children. Nearly two thirds of them are children. Um, we focus on making sure that life-saving support, such as um, a, a inpatient um, uh, therapeutic feeding center for malnourished children, is uh, is open and, and providing some emergency emergency care. Um, we also try to increase our activities, working with the local health authorities and, and other partners to respond to to COVID-19. Um, in terms of of actually providing uh, patient care for COVID um, patients. There is very limited bed capacity um, in the region. The the area has has is massively under under resourced in terms of um, COVID preparedness. So it is very it is very concerning. The numbers are are quickly increasing over 400 cases, and and amongst them a fifth are healthcare workers. So it's it's a balance between trying to to mobilise and scale up for um, responding to COVID. But at the same time, trying to make sure that, that existing healthcare facilities stay safe and, and that those uh, facilities, maternities, uh, uh, inpatient wards can also stay open so that people also don't die as a result of other um, health needs. And uh, just in general, uh, and Will, and perhaps it's an unfair question, how have Syrians generally been reacting uh, to the new battle of, of, of COVID-19? Well, and unfortunately, this... The COVID-19 is, is another uh, phase of a very difficult, uh, mm. difficult period, and this is this is a, a population that has suffered years of, of conflict. Um, people sure. have, have lost loved ones, have, have been uh, suffering from horrendous uh, injuries, have been displaced from their homes uh, maybe several times. So, unfortunately, this is another uh, challenge in, in in their in their recent uh, uh, um, plight, so to speak. Um, of course, um, it's it's difficult. Uh, people need to also uh, go about their lives to um, to earn, to provide for their for their families, and and, and of course the limitations are uh, are challenging uh, for them. But it's it, it's really the most vulnerable who who are most uh, at risk. I mean, people who who don't have the um, the financial means to to seek um, uh, healthcare, which is often uh, you have to pay for. Um, or who are uh, accommodating several um, people in, in their homes. These are the people who, who right now, along with the economic crisis in, in the country, are, are really struggling. Um, so the situation is, is challenging. Um, it's, it, it requires a concerted effort from, from several organizations, from, from governments to invest in northeast Syria. Um, and, and, and with particular attention to our whole camp, the displaced person camp, this is, this is a place where, where governments need to take their responsibility to, to ensure that adequate care and services are provided to um, the population of which many internationals are currently located. And that was Will Turner, Syria Emergency Manager for Doctors Without Borders in Syria. He was on the line talking to his economy. So it's now time for your economics news. Here's Tracy Boomgod. Thank you. South Africa's power utility Eskom has implemented stage four load shedding up from stage two earlier in the day. Eskom says this is due to some of its generating units having broken down. It says 11,300 megawatts of its roughly 44,000 nominal capacity was offline because of unplanned breakdowns. Just over 5,000 megawatts are down because of planned maintenance. South Africa's Auditor General Kimi Makwetu has announced that his office has made some frightening findings during the COVID-19 relief fund investigations. 
The COVID-19 relief funds have been a contentious issue in the country, with many South Africans expressing dissatisfaction about being excluded from financial support from the government as a result of maladministration. Makwetu has reported that the relief package redirected by the government as a response to the COVID-19 pandemic landed in a weak controlled environment. We identified something that we as an audit office have been preoccupied with for quite some time in our audit reports for both the PFMA and the MFMA. And the purpose of this report is to give feedback to the country on how we have experienced these environments in respect to the detection that comes with the audit. Because a lot of the effort that we put into this on the detection side of things has revealed a number of frightening findings that require to be followed up very quickly so that there is no significant passage of time before the required actions are implemented. Akinwumi Adesina has been signed in as the president of the African Development Bank for a second term. The ceremony was presided over by the newly appointed chair of the Board of Governors, Ghanaian Finance Minister Kenneth Ofori-Atta. The ceremony took place at the bank's Abidjan headquarters. Several presidents attended the virtual ceremony and sent messages of support. They included Paul Kagame of Rwanda, Liberian President George Weah, Alpha Conde of Guinea, Guinea-Bissau's President Umaru Sisoko Mbalo, and Denis Sasu Nguesu of the Republic of Congo. Former Nigerian President Goodluck Jonathan and Vice President Atiku Abubakar was also present. Afodi Atta says he has no doubt that Africa's premier development bank had secured the right leadership. Virgin Atlantic's 1.6 billion US dollar rescue deal is set for completion this week. This after a London judge sanctioned the airline's restructuring plan and gave the go-ahead aimed at helping the airline survive the coronavirus pandemic. Virgin Atlantic earlier projected that the airline would run out of cash at the end of September unless the deal was approved. The airline says this now puts it in a position to rebuild its balance sheet, restore customer confidence and welcome passengers back as soon as they are ready to travel. A free trade deal between Britain and Japan will provide certainty for companies and consumers, according to British Prime Minister Boris Johnson. Britain and Japan are in the advanced stages of trade negotiations. After leaving the European Union at the end of January, Britain is trying to strike bilateral deals with trading partners. Johnson and his Japanese counterpart Shinzo Abe have welcomed the progress made between negotiators from the two countries towards a bilateral free trade agreement. The U.S. dollar is trading at 385.15 Nigerian Naira, 11.35 Botswana Pula, 107.27 Kenyan Shilin and 19.49 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, one U.S. dollars trading at 5.43 Brazilian hail, 73.64 Russian ruble, 72.93 Indian rupee, 6.82 Chinese yuan, and at 16.71 South African rand. The U.S. dollars also trading at 74 pence to the British pound and 83 cents to the euro. Gold is trading at $1,970 and platinum at $935 per ounce. Brent crude oil is at $45.63 a barrel. For Channel Africa News, I'm Tracy Bumgard. This is Africa Digest. That wraps up this hour of Africa Digest. Be sure to join us again later from 1900 hours Central African time for more news from an African perspective. Here's Bang 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 by Zex Batwini taking us to the top of the hour.
Masalamu nchi nonse uko ku Malawi, Zambia, Mozambique, South Africa ndugu na kulikonse muli. Takula ndilano mundime ya tuya zochitika mwa Afrika pa chinyanja service ya Channel Africa. Tukumveka pa tsambalatu la pa makina apa internet pa www.channelafrica.co.za. Nipo pakane ima ya Destiny Vindi 802. Kwa maso pa mafone ya manja ni matabulete mutansu kupeza epu ya tuya SBC News. Mulindine madapiri ndi anzanga stelarongwe kwa maso Daniel Banda ndi zondani sakalatia nitikale nili mozi. Zochitika mu Afrika. Titora ndiku simbangani mopanda manta. Mosa kondera mopanda chibuibu komanso mosa kuruvika. Ndife makutu ndi maso wa Afrika. Oyamba mitu yankani. Zibane zina zotu samziko la South Africa. Zikupen pabo makuti ditese nchitidu okupa alimi ndio kwina nchido minda. President wakale waziko la mali. Boba Keita ali nchipata la mzinda wa Bamako likulu la zikolo. Sogoleli wajibani chotu samziko la Zambia cha UPND. Haka inde hichilema. Wadandaula kutiboma la zikolo likufuna kumupa. Niti mfenkani mwatarani tarani ndi stela longwe. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Sibani zina zo tuta nziko la South Africa zikupe mpaboma kutilitete nchitidu okupali mindu okwila nchito minda. Apungu anyumba ya malamulo nzikolo anakambila na zanchitidwe unyumbai kumayambili wa sabata ino. Pungu wa shibanisha DA Diane Bernard ye mwana sokolela zo kambila nazo wati nchitidwe u-